0: Why don't we just sit for an hour? (laughs) That would be the best Dharma talk. (laughs) But okay. (laughs) So tonight I'd like to continue the talk on the unfolding map of wisdom. So just to recap a little bit, from the first talk. We talked about some of the profound implications of the basic truth of impermanence, of change, of things continually becoming otherwise, and how attachment to that, which in its very nature is change, results in rope burn, Results so in some kind of suffering. If we're holding on to something which in its very nature is going to change, we suffer in one way or another. To use the example that I gave <laughs> in the first talk, uh, with the axle and the axle hole, it doesn't fit very well. Uh, if we're attached, we go on a very bumpy ride through our lives. <clears throat> So, we also talked about how, because of the truth of change, we develop a deeper understanding of the ultimately unsatisfying or ultimately unfulfilling nature of conditioned impermanent phenomena, precisely because they don't last. That's why they're ultimately unfulfilling. So we all know this, you know, just from our own experience and looking back at our past experience. We also talked about how when we understand and look at the rainbow-like nature of experience, of self, we see that the self-like rainbow is a designation for the appearance of certain causes and conditions coming together. Just like the rainbow appears because of the moisture and sunlight and air. So this appearance of self arises because of the workings, the interrelationship of all the mind-body elements. And in both cases, the key point is to understand that the rainbow is not a Thing in itself, but a designation for an appearance. Self is exactly the same uh, process as the rainbow. Self, the sense of self, even though we misunderstand it a lot, is basically a designation for the pattern, <coughs> for each of our individual patterns of mind and body. So it's not that the self is a thing in itself, it's rather a designation, a concept describing this appearance. So the Buddha expressed the importance of seeing this so clearly when he said, nothing whatsoever is to be adhered to as I or mine. So nothing whatsoever is to be adhered to or clung to as I or mine. Not the body, not thoughts, not emotions, not any part of our experience. And then he went on to say something quite interesting. He said, whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. Whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. So he really simplified it for us in terms of understanding the essence of what we're practicing. Through all the methods and all the different insights, it's all leading or pointing in the direction of a mind that is not adhering to anything as being I or mind. So now just to move on, that's kind of a quick summary of talk number one. So I'd like to continue uh, with the uh, experience of the real, but not really real, experience of the rainbow. So just as a kind of fun experiment, We might consider what the rainbow might look like to a being or, you know, other animals with a very different uh, sense structure, very different sense apparatus, particularly with the eyes. You know, if the eyes are constructed differently, clearly what is being seen is going to be different. And... (coughs) Uh, I was watching a nature program you know, on TV and uh, it, was, it was actually one of the, maybe some of you saw, it, it's one of the series that Obama was narrating uh, on national parks around the world and the last one was a national park in Indonesia and they had these fantastic shots of tigers um, and showing the tigers also hunting, you know, and their prey <clears throat> with some impala-like uh, animal, and I pointed out that one of the reasons that they are such a good prey for the tigers is that the eyes of the impalas don't see orange. yeah, you know, and so they showed through the photography what it looked like, you know, through those eyes. And it was just so striking and such a reminder that everything, everything we think we're seeing accurately or definitively is simply a function of how our eyes and other senses are constructed. And if they are constructed differently, what we take to be the real world would look very different. So it's helpful to remember that our perception of the world is conditioned by the structure of our sense apparatus. And to remind ourselves that it's not as if there is some fixed, definitive reality that we're perceiving that's out there. Our perception is completely conditioned by the apparatus through which we are perceiving things. This is what the Buddha called the magic show of consciousness. In some way, our consciousness, working through the sense apparatus, is constructing the world, our view of the world. So... Perhaps for some of you, a question might be arising now. Besides all this being of some philosophical interest, which for me it is, I mean, just, you know, it's kind of mysterious. How does this understanding help us in our lives? So I think that's really an important question for us. So I think it's not a surprise that one of the greatest sources of conflict in the world, both on a personal and on a global level, is attachment to our views. We have lots of views about almost everything. Even things we know nothing about. (laughs) It, It does not stop us from having views about it. And we get attached to our views because we think we're seeing the world or things accurately. And we forget that we're seeing things and what we're calling our accurate perception is a function of seeing things through the filter of our own particular individual conditioning. This attachment to view, you know, in almost every arena, you know, of social intercourse, this attachment to view is the source of a lot of conflict because quite unbelievably, other people might have other views. (laughs) Imagine that. I don't know that I mentioned this in the hall or into one of my groups. Uh, it's a book written by the uh, famous newscaster of bygone years, uh, David Brinkley. And he, he wrote this book with a wonderful title. Uh, the title of the book was, Everyone is Entitled to My Opinion. <laughs> And that's basically how we go through life. (laughs) And of course, we come into conflict because everyone has that view. So the antidote to that is really very simple. And it was expressed by a, I believe, 16th century Zen master Uh, His name was Bangkai. His wonderful book. uh, This book of his teachings called The Unborn. And it's it's really a very... uh, He was was a very iconoclastic Zen master. Uh, And his teachings are very pointed. Anyway, there was one line in his book which jumped out at me. And I just resonated so much with it as a practice. He said... Don't side with yourself. It's a good reminder. You know. So even when we're engaged, and we do engage, you know, in conversation, we have different opinions and views, and, but can we remember not to side with ourselves? And it doesn't mean that we don't have views or opinions, which we all do, but can we hold them a little more lightly so that it gives us at least an opportunity to slide into the other person's mind perhaps and to see things from their perspective and saying in that way it might alter our views a little bit or not. But at least we're open to taking in the different perspectives, understanding that everyone's perspective is the result of their own particular conditioning. It's not as if, Someone has uh, a channel to absolute truth, like David Brinkley. <laughs> you know? So, but even given all this, you know the conditional nature of how we per- perceive things, phenomena within ourselves, the mind-body, and in the world are not arising chaotically. So it's not the fact that we you know, all see things through our own particular filter of conditioning. Still, there are basic laws which are governing the unfolding of phenomena. And of course, we know this from just the laws of science, you know, which with increasing accuracy over the centuries, and I'm sure it will continue into the future, pretty accurate description of the cause and effect relationship, whether it's in chemistry or physics or biology or neuroscience, whatever it may be, there are laws governing how things unfold. And so that gives us a lot of information. The Buddha described the lawful nature of how our lives unfold. So not only are the physical laws of science, but there's an understanding in the Buddha's great wisdom about the laws governing the unfolding of our minds and what mind states lead to what results. So this understanding has tremendous consequences for the experience of happiness in our lives. If we're not aware of the causes of happiness, then we're kind of just moving blindly through the world, hoping for the best. But the Buddha was very uh, explicit and clear and incisive, having looked so deeply into the nature of his own mind, seeing so clearly what leads to what. And as you probably know, one of the most important uh, laws or far-reaching descriptions of how this works is the law of karma, you know, that actions bring result. But it's not only actions what determines the result, the karmic result of our actions, is the motivation behind them. So this is a very important point. If we want to understand the causes of happiness for ourselves and others, and understanding that it's the motivation behind actions that determines those results, it suggests very strongly that we have to learn and practice becoming aware of the motivations behind our actions, behind our actions of body, speech, and mind. So when our actions are motivated by wholesome states, skillful states like generosity or love or compassion or wisdom, That's like planting the seeds. Those motivations behind each of those actions is just like planting a seed which is going to germinate and flower in happiness. That will be the karmic result of those wholesome motivations. And if we plant the seeds of greed and hatred and ignorance, that's like planting the seeds, the karmic seeds, of what will bring about, in future results, different kinds of suffering. So this understanding, even in this most general way, you know, the law of karma could be uh, broken down in, you know, in tremendous detail. But this is a very general um, picture of how it all works. It's tremendously empowering when we understand it and reflect on it and begin to experiment with it in our own lives and to see for ourselves whether in some way or other you know, it's playing out in this way, it's empowering because then we can really shape the unfolding of our lives. It's as, it's as if we can become artists of our lives creating those conditions that are desirable and not creating those conditions that are going to cause distress or suffering for us. So we might ask ourselves the question as we're about to act in one way or another, and I'm gonna give one example of an arena that's very powerful to do it, but it really applies to everything we do, whatever act we do. Understanding the importance of motivation in this whole unfolding of the karmic law of cause and effect, the first step would really be to see what is the motivation now? So that takes a lot of mindfulness. You know, we really have to... um, might say pause a bit, you know, and just check in with ourselves, what is motivating this? And understanding what results will come, where is the action leading? And then most importantly, asking the question, do I want to go there? You know, if if we see that we're about to act based on greed or hatred. And we understand all this and realize this is leading to suffering. That's a tremendously powerful reminder to, oh, maybe, maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe this is a time to restrain this action. So I want to, just a short teaching from a Tibetan master, his name is Ziga Kongchul. He wrote, the potential for realization is universal and present for all of us. True benefit will come from your own efforts and realization. For your efforts to bring benefit, you must take your life into your own hands and examine your mind and experience. From this point of view, nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could have a greater effect on you or actually do more for you than yourself. The Buddha said, I have shown you the path of liberation. Now liberation depends on you. This is really true. If you don't take your life into your own hands, not even the Buddhas can make a difference. It's up to you. That's a very strong and direct charge to all of us. We need to take responsibility for our own minds, for our own actions, for our own motivations. Nobody can do that for us. So how can we begin to practice this? You know, how can we really apply it in our lives? <clears throat> so There's one particular arena of activity that I will just use as an example, but it really applies to everything we do in our lives. But in this one particular arena, it contains actions which have a profound impact on our lives, and mostly we don't pay attention to it. And this is the area of speech. Of course, here, it's not so much of a problem. (laughs) And maybe out there, if we kept our masks on all the time, it would also be less of a problem. (laughs) However, we do speak a lot. Just generally, in the course of our daily lives, you know, it's the main form of communication. but are we we really paying attention to the motivation behind our speech? Or do the words simply tumble out? My experience is that more often than not, unless we really undertake it as a practice, that they're in tumbling mode. You know, we find ourselves stimulated by something and then the words come out. So paying attention to speech and the motivations behind it becomes a very powerful way of integrating mindfulness into our daily lives because it's such a prevalent and common activity. So the Buddha was very big on lists And it may have to do, because it was an oral tradition, you know, and creating things in a list is a good mnemonic device. Anyway, there are lots of lists. One of them being the 10 unwholesome actions. So this ties in to the law of karma. And it's one of the reasons I feel such gratitude to the Buddha. He just laid it all out. It's like, we don't have to figure this out for ourselves. It's like, Okay, these these are the ten on, wholesome actions. Don't do them. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, uh, sometimes I think it's the Buddhist teaching. So, some, especially like this, it's as, it's as if he's talking to two-year-olds. <laughs> okay, don't lie. <laughs> you know, don't steal. <laughs> Anyway, there are ten ten unwholesome actions. Of the ten unwholesome actions, four have to do with speech. I find that quite remarkable. You know, that the Buddha singled out out of all the kinds of unwholesome activities we can engage in, four of the ten have to do with the words we use. So to me, that suggests that he felt this is a really important arena for practicing and developing mindfulness. This is a major part of our path, particularly living the Dharma in our daily lives. So the four kinds of speech that are unwholesome that should be avoided, again, this will be very obvious to you. First is lying, just saying that which isn't true harsh speech. So are we really paying attention to the tone, the energy of our words, gossip and backbiting? And with this, the Buddha gave a wonderfully simple uh, directive for understanding that and applying it. He said that We should use speech that unites people rather than divides them, just that. And I find it remarkable because in this category of gossip and backbiting, sometimes it's just social, it's not particularly harmful and it's not trying to divide people, but not infrequently that kind of speech either consciously or unconsciously sets people apart. You know, because very often we're speaking, we're speaking out our judgments. So just having that in mind, you know, that when we speak, is it uniting people or is it dividing people? That's, that's a tremendous gift, you know, if we can really apply it. And then the last kind of wrong speech It's a little strange to say of wrong speech that this is my favorite, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> I think it's my favorite because I love the poly word for it. So this list is not lying, you know, not harsh speech, not gossip, backbiting, dividing people. The last kind of unwholesome action of speech is useless talk. And the Pali word for useless talk is Sampapalapa. <laughs> so it sounds just like what it is. <laughs> sampapalapa. And when I read about this and really tried to practice it and see how that was working in my own life, it was amazing to me because I could be hanging out with friends and just in a social kind of environment and you know, just hanging out, basically, you know, in a conversation, and from time to time, I would notice that I would say something that was totally useless. <laughs> it had no bearing on anything, and really, the only purpose of it was kind of saying, "Here I am," but that was that was the only reason I could even think of you know for for talking like that so it became really interesting, and this became a practice for me, and still is when I'm mindful enough to see that I'm about to utter some completely useless speech no, I don't have to say that you know i really I really just restrain and it's really amazing. Even in that moment, in this you know, very small example, we can feel oh, different things. First, kind of the power of renunciation for shaping our lives. You know, when we use it in a really skillful way, and, and another word, the, the word that I really like better than renunciation is non-addiction. You know, instead of being addicted to our habit patterns, it's like, no, I don't have to do that. And when I do catch that impulse and refrain from that kind of speech, it tangibly feels like a conservation of energy. You know, Instead of just the energy spilling out and the enervation of that. No, it's like everything feels stronger. So this is just an example, you know, this this arena of speech. It's just a very uh, powerful arena for beginning to check out our motivations before action, you know, and really begin to see the karmic effect. I'm sure you know people, you know, who, who in your experience generally are very truthful, you know, and don't gossip and backbite and don't have a lot of useless talk and speak gently. I mean, how do you feel about those people? You probably have some appreciation for them, you know, because it creates a beautiful life. But it's up to us. Nobody can do that for us. We have to do that for ourselves. I can see at the rate I'm going, we're going to need a part three to this. (laughs) I get carried away by... (laughs) But there's one more part of speech that uh, I just love talking about. It's not actually so much speech, it's right listening. What's the mind like when it listens? So that's teaching from the Buddha, which sets a very high bar. And that's why I really like it, because it's such a high bar that it really is aspirational but it points to a direction. So this is what he said. There are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Okay, so we're listening and people are addressing us. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good, or connected with harm? Spoken with a mind of loving kindness, or with a mind of inner hate? Here you should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. So just imagine the scene, somebody speaking to you in a very untimely fashion, what they're saying are lies, spoken in a very harsh, angry tone, with an intent to harm you, filled with hate, our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassion for their welfare, for the mind of loving kindness. That's, as I said, a high bar. (laughs) But I like it because it's a reminder in the intercourse of communication, our minds are affected as much when we're listening as when we're speaking, right? And we can't control how other people are going to be speaking to us. So are we just giving our minds over to them, you know, and have their particular way of expressing influence, influencing whether our minds are wholesome or not? I think that's not such a good idea. And the Buddha is just pointing out that even in those most extreme circumstances, if we're being mindful, yeah, we can stay centered and just acknowledge that that's how they are speaking. So it's not pretending that they're not, but it's not causing a reaction, an unskillful reaction in our own minds. It's, this would be an amazing practice, you know, and... Uh, I like talking about this because sometimes people think that the real Dharma insights and practice happen on retreat only. But it's not. The Dharma is a whole life. And the area of speech is just a common aspect of how we live. And we can get to the depths of understanding our minds and our own reactions and what's wholesome and what's unwholesome in this arena Okay, I'm gonna edit. Okay, there's one other law governing our unfolding process beside the law of karma, and this is one of the deepest aspects of the Buddhist teachings, and you may be familiar with it to some extent. It's the law of dependent origination. And I'm just explaining a few links of it because it really uh, in one way brings together everything we've been talking about over these last over these last days. So it's obvious that we're all born into a body with different sense organs. You know, if if the body's healthy, so there's eyes and ears and nose and tongue, the body to feel sensations. And the mind, that's the sixth sense object. Because there is the body with the sense organs, and we're surrounded by sense objects, like sights or sounds or smells or tastes, when they come together, that's contact. So moment after moment, there's contact between the object and the sense organ. So that happens automatically. That's just a given. Every moment of our experience, there's a contact with something. Buddha then went on to analyze exactly what happens out of that contact. So the contact is a given. And then he said, based on contact or conditioned by contact, feeling tone arises, that feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that we've been talking about a lot. You know, in Pali, it's Vedana. So this feeling tone also happens automatically. Can't stop that from happening. And this feeling tone is the taste of each of the sense experiences. And I don't mean literal taste, but the taste of whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So all of this is just, this is all going on by itself. We have no control over that. But then the next link is really what's so crucial. Okay, there's feeling tone that arises, but here's where our reactive conditioning comes into play. And we've been talking a lot about this. Because things are pleasant, we experience them as being pleasant. We get attached, we cling, we desire, we want them. So it's the feeling tone, which is conditioning the desire. If it's unpleasant, you know, our reactive conditioning is we don't like it. We want to get rid of it. We want it to go away. So this is the normal way of life for most people. You know, and I think most people who don't really looking at their lives, this is just normal. Of course I want what's pleasant and don't want what's unpleasant. But it's not a free way to live because we're not in control of everything that happens to us so maybe it would be okay if we could arrange things so things are always pleasant but that as we know is not the case so how can we find freedom in the fact of this uh, could say alternation or change between pleasant unpleasant pleasant unpleasant can we find some equilibrium can we find some ease some peace, regardless of what the feeling tone is. Can we be at peace when it's pleasant? Can we be at peace when it's unpleasant? And that's really where the freedom is. And so this is pointing to the fact that we need to be mindful, as we've been talking, you know, in the morning especially, We want to make the feeling tone when it's strong, the object of mindfulness. So when something is being felt as particularly pleasant, it's very helpful to practice at times, noting pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. And the note here particularly can be helpful because in the moment of noting, especially if it's done softly, in that moment of noting, we are not identified with it, we're not reacting to it, we're being mindful of it, And so there's no desire, there's no grasping, there's no attachment in that moment. Likewise, with the unpleasant feeling, it's very helpful, of course, and I'm sure you've noticed this, that our immediate reaction to unpleasant feeling is usually not, Oh, good. Let me, let, me, let me explore this. Our instinctive reaction, probably for most of us, is painful feeling. I don't like it. I'd rather it went away. So again, it's just this law of dependent origination is laying out how important it is if we want to experience some inner freedom, to be mindful of that feeling tone, unpleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant. And in the moment of noting in that way, in that soft way, we're not identified, we're not reactive, we're not aversive. It's very illuminating to begin to practice. So you have a a real experiential understanding that we actually can be mindful of pleasant without the craving and mindful of unpleasant without aversion, even if it's for a short period of time or within a certain range. You know, so we might be able to, oh, unpleasant, unpleasant, and then maybe at a certain point of pain, okay, it's beyond our capacity at that point. Fine, we've reached an edge, we play the edge a little bit, and then come back to a more easeful place. But we're practicing it. And particularly with unpleasant sensation, one of the ways that I coach myself or remind myself or motivate myself to work with it is to see it as practice for dying. Of course, we don't know, you know, the circumstances of our death, but it's not unlikely that it will involve some discomfort. That the body's, you know, kind of falling apart in whatever way it does. How do we want to be? You know, will we be to some extent at ease in that whole process? Well, if we wait until then to practice this, it probably won't be that successful. But if we undertake this practice now, so when there's discomfort or there's pain, to really understand, this is a powerful training. Can I I just learn? Okay, unpleasant, it's okay. It's okay to feel unpleasantness. But we have to train ourselves in that because it's not generally our conditioning. But this is where the Buddha, this law of dependent origination, is really pointing to just that place in the whole unfolding process where we can experience a real sense of freedom. Okay, so the last aspect. Uh, I was going to say, you'll have to come back for everything I'm leaving out. <laughs> but the, the last aspect uh, that I want to talk about tonight, aspect of the teachings, is the experience and the development and the cultivation of compassion. And compassion is the natural outcome of everything we've been talking about during this whole week. I want to read something to you, which is quite, uh, it's an unusual way of understanding things, some of the basic Buddhist concepts. And it was written by, or was in a conversation with Lou Richmond, who's a Zen teacher, Zen master, who lives in the Bay Area. I'm not sure whether he's still alive or not. Um, But he came down with a very severe disease, viral encephalitis. And it's said to be a devastating and often fatal illness. He was in a coma for two weeks. Uh, There was brain damage and other disabilities. And he said that it took three to four years to fully recover from it. But this is what he learned from that ordeal. He said, sometimes when I'm asked to describe the Buddhist teaching, I say this. Everything is connected. Nothing lasts. You are not alone. And this is is him going on. This is really just a restatement of the traditional three marks of existence. Non-self, impermanence, and suffering. I don't think I would have expressed the truth of suffering as you are not alone before my illnesses. But now I find that talking about it in that way gets at something important. The fact that we all suffer means that we are all in the same boat and that's what allows us to feel compassion. So there's a very direct relationship between our ability to feel the suffering in ourselves, to see it in others, and to understand the commonality of it all. We are all in the same boat. We're all subject to aging and illness, death. And as many of you know, there's a very classic Buddhist reflection on, on these aspects of life and I love this reflection and very simple whatever has the nature to age will age and I am not exempt whatever has the nature to grow ill will grow ill and I am not exempt whatever has the nature to die will die and I am not exempt well I think we're all pretty probably easeful with the understanding that what has the nature to grow old will go old. But it's the tagline that I find particularly powerful. And I am not exempt. Because at least I see in myself that, of course, I know this intellectually, but I don't believe it. <laughs> Deep down. <laughs> No, I do believe it. But there is that there is that feeling that it's really about other people. You know, that... And so sometimes I'll use that. as just as I'm going through my life and, you know, some aspect of not feeling well or I hurt something, whatever, and I'll remind myself, and I'm not exempt. Because the previous thought probably... Well might have been, well, why did this happen? You know, of course it's gonna happen. We have a body, and the body goes through this, and we are not exempt. So to take that in. And the Buddhist suggests reflecting on this daily to use these reflections, because it takes that repetition to really make it part of oneself, you know, and, and to, to grok it. Um, So what is compassion? You know, we, it's really the strong and deep feeling that wants to alleviate suffering, whether it's our own or others'. And one of my favorite expressions or phrases, which expresses for me the essence of compassion, is <coughs> the title of a book by Ramdas and Paul Gorman. They wrote it together way back, maybe. 70s uh, the name of the book is how can i help it's a great title as an expression of the compassionate attitude And you know as we go through life and we're <coughs> in different situations and different relationships can we make that question kind of the the foundation you know of the way we relate <coughs> in situations of suffering how can I help? So the Dalai Lama, who you know, is such an embodiment of compassion, so we use him as an example so often because, for those of you who have seen him you know, either live or <coughs> in some media, he exudes compassion in, in, in the most wonderful way. So he said, compassion and love are precious things in life. They are not complicated, they are simple, but difficult to practice. So I found that very interesting. You know, it's worth considering why such a beautiful and ennobling state, like compassion, should be difficult to practice. You know, why, why aren't we just drawn to being that way? So compassion arises when we're willing to come close to suffering. That's the condition for compassion to arise. The problem is that even though we may want to be compassionate and perhaps very often are, it's not always easy to open to the suffering that is present. You know, there are strong tendencies in the mind that keep us defended from it or withdrawn or apathetic or indifferent to the suffering that is around us. This, the indifference that we may feel is often unacknowledged. We're not even aware that we're being indifferent or we're not coming close. We're not experiencing the suffering, really, with an open heart. So just as an experiment, the next time you're in a situation of suffering, and it could be right in this retreat, you know, you're sitting and your body starts hurting a lot. Or there's, you know, some kind of interaction. Uh, maybe the, maybe it's, Somebody sitting next to you in the hall is very restless and they're disturbing your meditation. Right? So it's a minor kind of suffering, but suffering nevertheless. What's your first reaction you know, to the pain, to the difficult circumstance? Very often we can see our first tendency may be not to want to open to it and try to block it out. Or not experience it. So it might be difficult feelings in the body. It might be difficult emotions. How are you relating to that? Are you open to the suffering and feeling compassion for it? Or not? With different kinds of emotions, you know, there's so fear and loneliness and jealousy and unworthiness and shame and uh, discontent. There are so many afflictive emotions that are the cause of suffering. What's our relationship to them? And of course, then there are all these many situations of suffering in the world, you know, huge, you know, all the racial injustice and political and religious violence and homophobia and sexism. I you could go on and on and on. Climate change, huge amount of suffering that's, that's going on what happens when we face these situations either directly or through the media? You know, when we really come face to face with it, do we feel uneasy about it? Do we withdraw it? Do we turn away? Or do we open to it? So that's something I'm hoping when you hear these words, you're really taking them as an invitation To look at all this in your own life and experience. Because you can hear it kind of as concepts and you could agree or disagree. But the real uh, understanding of yourselves, you know, and how your mind and heart is, will come when you apply and really look in these real life situations okay, what is going on? How am I relating to this? Am I open? Am I closed? Without judgment. You know, I saw this for myself; these tendencies so clearly in my India days. This goes back many years. And those of you who've been in India know there are lots of just uh, homeless dogs wandering around, and they're often in pitiable condition, starving, full of mange. I mean, it's terrible. So I would be there practicing and then in between retreats, you know, I'd often go into the the village, sit at the chai shop, have a cup of tea, some sweets. And of course these dogs would be all around. And it was so interesting for me to watch my mind. There were times when for whatever, I don't want to deal with it. You know, it's unpleasant and just seeing it, seeing it all, just let me enjoy my sweet. You know, that was that was was in my mind and so i could i could sense myself withdrawing and kind of pushing against and then at other times when maybe my mind was a little more uh, relaxed you know and open i really let it in i really opened my eyes to the suffering that was there and not surprisingly in that openness the feeling of compassion just came Spontaneously, I didn't, have to, I didn't have to practice compassion. It came from being open to the suffering that was right in front of me. So we need to just look in, you know, in ourselves at all this. When we open to the pain and suffering in our own lives, in our own experience, and you can do this right here in retreat, and as you're dealing with difficult situations, the more we practice being open and coming close here, the greater strength and courage we have in being open in this way when we're out in the world. So Ria was a great Zen master, the 18th and beginning of 19th century Japanese, who's beloved. Uh, He was like this wandering monk. He lived up in the mountains. Uh, He was a poet. Uh, Basically, he would just wander around. The stories are that he would just spend his days playing with the village children. He had a great, great open heart. And his great open heart extended even to inanimate objects. He just took everything in and one of his little poems uh, illustrates this and i love it so he he was this wandering monk very poor he had almost nothing you know so he had this uh, old beat up begging bowl to go around for food so he wrote i've forgotten my begging bowl but no one would steal it no one would steal it How sad for my begging bowl! Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So this points to an attitude that we can really cultivate, both to the inanimate objects in our lives but of course, more importantly, to everyone we connect with. This feeling of connection and openness and compassion. So again, from the Dalai Lama, he said, I try to treat whoever I meet as an old friend. This gives me a genuine feeling of happiness. So I just want to repeat. I try to treat whoever I meet as an old friend. So just imagine for a moment you're doing that. You know, and I, that's an extraordinary level of presence and open heartedness. You know, strangers or whoever I meet, can we treat as an old friend? He said, This gives me a genuine feeling of happiness. It is the practice of compassion. So, as compassion grows, we can begin to engage very actively with the suffering in the world, responding to the various needs of beings, in whatever way is appropriate and possible. You know, and sometimes we respond in very small, unregarded ways, and sometimes with tremendous determination and courage. just read a couple of things and you know we're, you, you may know who Paul Farmer is. Uh, he was this great health worker. I you know, he was doing this fantastic work first in Haiti and then around the country. Uh, amazing public health work. And he was building clinics in Haiti, but then on some days, he would just walk to remote villages to see a few people. And he was criticized for that because, you know, more people were coming to the clinic and why are you taking all this time, you know, to visit these few people out in the mountains? This is what he said. If you say that seven hours walk is too long to walk for two families of patients, you're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less, is the root of all that's wrong in the world. I mean, that's that's it. You know, the idea that some lives matter less. So again, it's not just kind of hearing it and, you know, taking it in in some way, but really to look at our own lives, and the way we relate to people. And it's, it's not uncommon. I think it's probably common for all of us that we privilege some people over others. You know, this is kind of the normal, conventional way of being in the world. But the Buddha, in his teaching on compassion, is pointing to something different. And that's why it has been you know, mentioned in all the Brahma Vihara talks, the universal quality, the immeasurable quality—they don't leave anybody out. So we need to remember that and just practice. It, it is a practice, you know. And we want to see if we can take advantage of the different situations in our lives to open our hearts in this way. Okay. Maybe I'll just kind of try to wrap this up. I think it's really important to understand in listening to all of this that we don't have to be saints or some special being to practice compassion. We can take advantage of the situations in our own lives if we have this in mind. You know, if we really understand, yes, it arises from being willing to come close, to open to the suffering. And then the compassionate response, in whatever way. You know, sometimes it might be big things, and sometimes just a gesture of friendliness, generosity. It can be very small things. We don't have to be some special being in order to practice this. And this was expressed by another Japanese famous haiku poet, Issa. who's was a wonderful poet. The New Year's Day, everything is in blossom. I feel about average. Yeah. I feel about average. And still appreciating New Year's Day, everything in blossom. <laughs> you know, just as our ordinary selves, we can engage so fully in all of these practices. And we each find our own way. There's no hierarchy of compassionate action. It may be the front lines of work in the world. It may be sitting in a cave for 10 lifetimes or 100 lifetimes. Now, think of the bodhisattva. How many lifetimes must he have spent in a cave before the energy... Of his full enlightenment, flowered, and we are here 2,600 years later because of that energy. And yet, at the time, you can just imagine, you know, his family and friends when he was off in a cave. Oh, what are you doing? You're just wasting your time. Why don't you get a job? You know. <laughs> so be careful not to judge, you know, or create this hierarchy of what you think is compassion and we will each find our own way, our own interests, our own inclinations, as we respond in this way in the world. Okay, so I'll just close with, we're planting the seeds, you know, we're planting the seeds of compassion and they may be small seeds and small actions. This is what Thoreau had to say about seeds. Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there and I am prepared to expect wonders. I think that's a really useful reminder to us all. You know, we're planting seeds, we're planting seeds of wholesomeness, you know, of goodness. And those seeds are going to germinate and grow and have tremendous impact, you know, in the world. And that's really what our practice is all about. So, let's sit for just a minute or two. (coughs) This is a teaching from another great life master, John Lennon. When I was five years old, my mother always told me that happiness was the key to life. When I went to school, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wrote down, happy. They told me I didn't understand the assignment. And I told them, they didn't understand life. So as Thich Nhat Hanh said, happiness is available. Please help yourselves to it. And so that's our undertaking. Thank you for your attention and your patience. <laughs> the bell can't end without the bell. Since it went over a little bit, maybe uh can just extend the walking period. So, ever rings the bell for the walking, now it's 20 to 9, why don't you ring the bell at 9 and then can sit for half an hour.